As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. In the equity space, we heard it from the technical analysis giant, Ralph Ancampora, Edward Yardeni of Yale, C.J. Lawrence is his own shop on top of it, get into the stock market in October of last year. And on the economic side of Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX was Neil Dutta, very lonely at Renaissance Macro a year ago. We're really coming on a year ago, Neil, from your arch call. Let's review. What did you see in September of 2022? Well, thanks for that intro, Tom. You always make me look better than I actually do. Yeah, we try. <laughs> um, so I appreciate it. But, uh, you know, I think it was, for me, it boiled down to something very simple, which is um, wage, uh, wage inflation was hanging in there while price inflation was coming down. I mean, that was the principal risk to the economy um, in the spring of 2022. You had a very aggressive Fed. You had rising food and energy prices that shocked household incomes. Uh, due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, of course, as we got towards the end of the year, a lot of that shock had gone away while the labor markets were still kind of hanging in there. So real incomes were climbing. Um, and that meant stronger uh, consumer spending, ultimately. And that's why uh, the economy right. sort of hung there. And, and of course, remember early in the year, Tom, everyone was uh, betting on a Fed pivot. Um, and... We saw a very, uh, you know, we saw a modest decline in, in mortgage rates as a result of that. But that modest drop elicited a fairly uh, robust response in housing market activity. So there's a lot of pent up demand there uh, for housing. Um, and so I think, you know, when housing is working, it's um, right. difficult to be very bearish on the economy. If we have disinflation or leveling of inflation, what does nominal GDP do? Because top line GDP, your real GDP optimism with whatever inflation is linked into revenues of corporations. What's the data nominal GDP call? I mean, it's at least six percent. Wow. I mean, if you if you believe the um, if you believe the last employment report, um, when you look at aggregate weekly uh income, aggregate weekly payroll, sort of the sum product of jobs, hours, and earnings. Over the last three months, that number is up 7% at an annual rate. So, you know, the labor market sort of impulse for nominal growth is quite strong as well. So uh, we have um, an unsustainably strong economy still. Um, and this is happening at a time when the, um, 
the Fed is taking, uh, you know, steps to the exit door. Uh, so, you know, to me, I think the risk, and this is what I think makes me not an optimist, is that the risk is that, you know, the Fed is prematurely declaring victory. Um, I do see a lot of cyclical momentum in the economy right now, and um, and the Fed stepping back. I think that could set us up for a problem as we go into 2024. Neil, the fact that you said an unsustainably hot economy, an unsustainable level of growth in the U.S. raises this real question, what's going to make it unsustainable? Is it the inflation story that you see as resurging? We've talked about this before, and the fact that the Fed's not there, or is it just that you cannot continue in a vacuum? So at some point, it's going to implode on itself. Well, I don't know that it'll implode on itself without the Fed doing something about it. And of course, you know, the problems for markets are always when there's a disconnect between what the Fed wants to do and what they should do. That's when the problems uh, come up. And, you know, I think the Fed should not be signaling rate cuts next year. I mean, that to me is a bare, uh, you know, that, that's like a easy first thing that they should do is not signal rate cuts. Um, they need to maintain um, a tight monetary stance because, frankly, real GDP growth is running, last I checked, 6% at an annual rate over the last three months. Now, you can talk about revisions. You can talk about, uh, you know, that's not where the underlying growth rate is. But if you look at monthly GDP as of July, over the last three months, ending in July, it's up 6% at an annual rate. I know that's not the underlying trend, but it's above trend okay. growth. Well, and this is the reason why a lot of people are talking about the same thing that you are. We heard from Katie Kaminsky over at Alpha Simplex basically saying the same thing that you are in different ways. And she's bearish on bonds because she sees this coming to the fore and yields having to remain higher for longer. There is a question, though, embedded in Goldman Sachs's uh, discussion of the long and variable lags. And maybe this is an economy that can shrug off a 5% Fed funds rate, and it's not going to matter. So at what point do you see higher bond yields as not in? consistent with higher stock prices, with higher valuations, with a continued rally in the equity market? Well, I mean, I think right now the um, the combination is reasonably good for stocks, right? Because the Fed is backing off and you have strong growth. And that's, that's you know, so the Fed's sort of off your neck, I think, at least through the end of the year. I mean, if they're going to hike again, it'll probably be in December. So I don't really think we have to worry about the Fed. Um you know, until then. And this is happening at a time when there's cyclical momentum in the in the economy. Um, the fact is, is that goods spending, consumer spending on goods is up over three uh, percent against last year. And during that time, non-farm inventories have been contracting around half a percentage point on average per quarter. Again, that's an unsustainable drawdown in inventory. So what are you going to see? You're going to see inventories restock. That's going to buoy manufacturing production. Again, cyclical industries. So that should be good for equities. The question is, when does the Fed wake up and realize that um, you know long and variable lags are, are not working out um, as neat and cleanly as they have in their uh, in the Furbis model? Based on the six percent concept, that, they may have to step on the brakes even more so. What does that mean, right? And that's exactly where I was going to go. How high do rates have to go in order to curtail some of what you see as unsustainable growth in the U.S.? I mean, I, to me, I think that they, you need to keep the possibility on there for them to start to hike again in the, the first half of next year. Um, at a minimum, um, 
They're going to price. I mean, I think they have four rate cuts priced into the summary of economic projections right now. Um, it's hard to see that surviving uh, in September. So, you know, I think let's start there. Neil, in, in the economics textbook, chapter 23 or 24 links all of this econo babble into the stock market. Take the data optimism and the corporations are going to have to deal with an improved real rate. They're going to have to deal with a high nominal rate, you know, about three years, five years or well. How does the stock market respond to that? How does the stock market react to an overweighted, optimistic data world? Well, uh, so I think you could call it uh, sort of an inflationary boom. I think that might be what we're returning to. And if that's the case, that's an environment where stocks can work. Um, but uh, it's I mean, it's unambiguously bad for bonds. But for, for stocks, I think it's an environment where you should see continued uh, positive returns, maybe not you know somewhat below the historical norm. Obviously, <clears throat> if you have higher real interest rates, that hurt, hurts equities. But if you have continued growth in the economy, that means yeah. that actual projected earnings will hang in there. So uh, how, how I, just because of time, you know, I got to get this in. How is an inflationary boom different now from the horror of the 60s? Well, that was obvious. Well, the horrors of the 60s I and mean, the 60s were a reasonably good, uh, good period for for stock market returns and the economy um, An inflationary boom. Um, again, as I say, is something that where equities can work. What you don't want is, uh, is stagflation like conditions <clears throat> where productivity is coming down, where you have repeated supply shocks. Uh, that's an environment where uh, bond returns are horrible, but uh, but stock returns mm -hmm. are as well because, the, you know, companies can't can't find a way to make to make money in that right. environment. Neil, your Q4 GDP number right now. We got to get Bramo going. What's your Q4 real GDP number? I mean, we're running so strong right now. I mean, but I think we probably slow to something like two and a half in, in, in Q4. I think what the consensus is missing right now is that we're going to have a very uh, robust inventory restocking on our hands um, that's going to bleed into measures of factory activity. Neil Dada, congratulations on your economic work. He's with the Renaissance Macro at Research as well. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Katie Kaminsky, Chief Research Strategist at Alpha Simplex, joins us now. Katie, short question just to open up. Are you still short the Treasury market? Yes. 436 didn't get it done for come you. come on. First time, I mean, first time guest. Hey, you got to go longer, question. No, 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 no. There is a follow-up. It's okay. Please, we, follow we welcome up. short answers. Katie, let's elaborate on that. We saw 436 on a 10-year. We got back to 5.1% on a two-year. What exactly are you looking for? Why is the juice worth the squeeze? 
Well, I love that you asked this because everyone keeps saying, let's be bullish the bond market, but look at the price. Look at the price all summer. It has continued to go up in yield. So yields, even though they pulled back last week, they continued on Friday and they're continuing today. And what we're seeing is we need to see a flatter yield curve and everyone's really much really, really ready for there to be a pause. And there's probably a pause, but I think it's going to take a while before we see a flatter yield curve and before we see a situation where inflation has come down. Thus, we, we're going to see higher yields for a little bit longer. What does it mean to be bearish at a time where yields are jumping all over the place? Are you outright short or are you just not buying the stuff? So in the futures markets, um, the technical signals have been outright short for two years. And that sounds interesting, but it really means that they're, in some sense, in contrast to what you would think about um, most fundamental uh, traders have been thinking about the bond market. But we've started to see a lot of fundamental traders as well saying that they're also short the bond market, which means that they're shorting bonds, expecting that we're going to need to see a flatter yield curve, that we're going to need to see a higher <clears throat> yield return on longer term debt. Um, and this makes sense because maybe we need a duration premium back in the curve um, for the short term. When people ask you for some sort of fundamental explanation for why longer term bond yields will remain high, pointing to the idea that we're probably going to go back to some sort of normal that we saw pre-pandemic of slow growth and slow inflation, what do you say? Is it just technical? Is it foreign buying? Is it something about just the debt load of this nation? That's a really good question. I mean, I think it's a combination of either a preference for holding that long-term debt either as a hedge for potential deterioration in financial conditions, um, a view that we could have rate cuts faster than they might occur, um, is the two common ones I'm thinking about. So a lot of people are thinking, well, hey, things look good. The Fed's going to come in and cut. But my concern is that they think that, but now it's looking like 20, it was originally going to be 2023. Now they're saying 2024. Who knows when it's going to be 2025? Uh, my view is that we're going to take time to get to that point with the Fed. And thus, interest rates have to stay higher for longer. And if you're going to hold a long-term bond, you need to have that duration premium over the shorter-term return of holding shorter-term debt. So in that sense, it's a, a fundamental uh, view in that sense. Katie, that might be an argument for why yields should stay high. What's the argument for why they will be higher? So why they will be higher is that I think that it's not priced in that it could take longer uh, to get to cuts. And so people are assuming that, you know, things are going to go back to normal and thus shorter term rates will go down and we'll have a healthier curve. But if, in fact, they have to stay higher for longer in the short end, that means that longer term rates have to go up. And it's it's a simple question when people start to realize, wait a minute, I'm getting five something percent for two years. If I'm going to hold something for 10, maybe I want a little yeah. bit more. Catherine, let's talk trending. Let's talk Katie on the great giant Wells Wilder. If I look at Brent crude, I have a nascent uptrend like I had three, four years ago as well. On ADX DMI, on parabolic SAR, on exponential climb and moving averages, is Brent crude trending higher? Yes. 
And that's the biggest thing we've been focusing on. So if we want to connect this inflation story, the thing we're watching is the oil market because we're looking for catalysts, something that might give us another wave of uptick for upside risk in the inflation numbers. Those are the things that are going to cause the Fed to be more cautious. And also, we're seeing signs of that outside the U.S. Of course, we saw right. some. Yeah, exactly. Katie, come on. It's the beginning of the year, the beginning of the business year. What's your point figure target on Brent crude right now? Over 100? Uh, I don't have the exact number, <laughs> but we're definitely seeing that's one of the biggest growing trends in terms of our signals. The signal, um, the signal strength for Brent crude has been one that's been ticking up lately. It did uh, revert a little bit in August based on some some data on China and other um, the dollar also weakening a little bit. Um, so we started to see some dollar strength, dollar weakening messing with some of that trend. But in general, that has been the trend to watch more recently. Um, and the reason that is important is because that is one of the indicators, at least when we've seen uh, inflation data down the pipeline. Brent crude has been one, for example, in 2022, that tends to be something to follow um, as a catalyst into where you start to see inflation numbers tick up later in the year. Katie, thank you for the update. Katie Kaminsky there of Alpha Simplex on a bond market. going to be complete right now with Wendy Schiller, director of the Taubman Center of American Politics and Policy at Brown. Truly one of our most popular guests. We get huge response when she's on. Wendy, let's go to the images that we saw on radio. It was the president doing what he does, marching around the mic, baseball cap on, hearkening to a union that he knew in eastern Pennsylvania long ago and far away. Don't they vote for Trump now? Well, the, there's a lot of mixed uh, voting in terms of unions, right? So if you think about the Teamsters, for example, they lean uh, a little bit more Republican in their voting, but a lot of other private unions, uh, even in the local level, uh, vote for Democrats because they believe Democrats will spend money on things like infrastructure, uh, which means construction, which means jobs for them. So it depends on the sort of local balance on where the jobs are in terms of private unions. You're absolutely right. About 7%, a little over 7% of the of the private sector is unionized, but public sector is still in the 30s in terms of unionization. And that can really matter in some of these key swing states. When Republicans go after unions, go after labor, they go after public employee unions, you know, that can cost them votes. So Biden's sort of skirting the line, private labor, but also public labor unions are very important coming down to the election. Politically, do you see a rekindling or rejuvenation of unions moving from that 7% statistic higher, or is that just wishful thinking on the part of union types? Well, I think there seems to be a concerted strategic effort for unions to branch out, things like college campuses, for example, unionizing undergraduates, unionizing graduate students. You may think, oh, well, that may not matter on the margins. However, that's a group that is still really ripe for picking in terms of votes. And it's certainly a group that the Democrats need more than the Republicans to get out the door. So every time you have a new union agreement or a new new people coming into the union sphere, you know, that's a pretty much guaranteed vote because unions are excellent still at getting out their base to vote. 
Wendy, it seems like yesterday's speech did a number of things. It did highlight the union membership. It also highlighted the fact uh, that there has been more union action recently without the strikes that could potentially be a liability. But this is also what Biden said. We're turning things around because of you. When the last guy was here, you were shipping jobs to China. Now we're bringing jobs home from China. How much is President Biden trying to galvanize his campaign by going after former President Trump with the assumption that he will be the person he's facing off? Well, Lisa, I, I would argue he hasn't done that enough yet. And also just to show Biden out on the trail, you know, he can walk, he can talk, he's clear, he was energetic. I mean, you know, given the most recent polling uh, that has people really doubting his age and doubting his capability, the more he can get out and show that he's still vibrant, you know, the more he can mitigate those kinds of concerns. So I think that's a really important part of this strategy. And also, if you think about uh, some of the things in the most recent polling about Trump's uh, job performance in office, this, it's it's relatively positive. So, you know, the COVID after effect, which some people argue cost Trump the presidency in 2020, that seems to be diminishing for Trump. So, you know, absent the indictments, uh, there might be a rosier glow on how Trump's presidency went among average voters or independent voters. That's a real concern for the Democrats, a real concern for Biden. He's got to remind people of what that administration really was like uh, and why they rejected it in 2020. Does President Biden have any chance of winning if he's not facing off with the former President Trump. Uh, Lisa, that is, you know, that is the Republican Party's existential question. Uh, you have to believe that the negatives associated with Trump, particularly among independent voters in swing states. Remember, some of these swing states have swung a little more to the Democrats in recent elections, at least at the gubernatorial level and the Senate level. And when you think about that, that's their issue. You know, would they do much better if Nikki Haley was the head of the ticket or even Ron DeSantis, even if he looks shaky or even Tim Scott? I'm not sure if Vivek Ramaswamy is, is the guy to go to. So Trump light, so I'm not sure that does it for them. But if they didn't have the liability of Trump, would they be doing and polling much more strongly mm. among independents than they are now? Professor Schiller, Jeff Stein with the, with the article of the weekend on the nation's deficit, again, burgeoning out X number of trillion. Uh, uh, Everett Dirksen and I have lost track of the billions and trillions. Is the debt of concern to an academic like you, or is it just the usual debt angst, not understanding the mass, the size, the scale of America? Well, I, I think the, the parties have long abandoned really seriously worrying about the debt. The Republicans and the Democrats, all the Republicans use it. I think solving the debt limit crisis, I think that was, as we saw, something that both parties understood they had to finish and had to get done. But you'll see this rhetoric, Tom, absolutely in the next four weeks by the Republican Party. They're going to claim we spend too much money. They're going to want big cuts. And Biden's going to have to hold the line, which may lead to a government shutdown a couple of days after the second Republican Party debate. And that hurts in the end the day, it hurts Biden in a lot of ways because he's the incumbent and because the incumbent is supposed to run the government smoothly. If you couple that with another strike, another union strike, if we see the auto worker strike, I think that creates real uncertainty and concern among voters about the Biden administration. So it's a real risk for them. Wendy Schiller of Brown University. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? 
With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Right now, it's we're going to burst into tears with David Rubenstein. He joins us, of course, at the Carlisle Group, his philanthropy, including completely stacking the Duke football. We have to stop the show after talking to guard Jay Pulaski. Duke 28, Clemson 7. How did you contribute to this win? <laughs> I was calling the signals in from the sidelines. I, and, and people didn't know with that. Your I had support hand Duke. signals. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and uh, that's what Duke did. They, they, if they'd listened to my hand signals earlier, they would have been a better team all along. But they just started listening to them. Is this Rubenstein making Duke football a new D1 resurgent story? Um, it's great. It's, we haven't had victory as big as this in quite some time. What kind of hand signals? Like, woo! Yeah, well, that, that's how Coach K won all of his championships. I would yeah. send in hand signals from the sidelines. He didn't want to tell people that. Yeah. David Rubenstein, uh, Jeremy <laughs> Grant. I've known Jeremy for ages. I have a huge respect for him and his philanthropy speaks volumes. In your conversation with Mr. Grantham, how did you address the three-year, the four-year caution he's had on the American financial experiment. For those who don't know, Jeremy Grantham is uh, a man who is a very distinguished uh, an analyst, financial analyst, and he's been quite uh, prescient in predicting uh, bubbles bursting. And he's really good at that. And he's predicted many bubbles that have that actually subsequently burst. As a result, he's got a really terrific record as an investor. But now he's spending most of his time uh, investing in, in climate change and climate tech. He thinks the greatest challenge in the world now is the, the climate problem we have. So most of his money is in a foundation that goes towards that. But he likes to call bubbles, and he's, he's said maybe artificial intelligence is a mini bubble. But we're now coming out of the tech bubble, and that tech bubble he forecast, and he was not involved in tech, and therefore he did pretty well for his investors. He built GMO uh, many years ago. He's a British uh, citizen initially, but lived in the United States after Harvard Business School. And he built uh, one of the better money management firms in the Boston area. And he's quite well known for his philanthropy, but also for predicting bubbles. And um, he also says the Fed is almost always wrong in predicting recessions. The Fed is not predicting recession now, but he thinks we will have a recession for sure. Does he think that it's harder to see a bubble now than in the past? Is it more difficult to spot bubbles in an era where people have been grown up, uh, have, have been raised through the financial crisis and through the big short and all the glory around bubbles? Well, you don't really know you're in a bubble till it bursts, typically. And he's actually pretty good at predicting bubbles, but nobody's perfect at it. And the reason we have bubbles, he would say, is that there's the phenomenon that everybody is afraid that their neighbor's going to get rich and they're going to miss out on it. So they, they pile in when things keep going up, and uh, ultimately, in a, in a burst, they, they're disappointed. Um, pointed out, for example, Sir Isaac Newton, one of the smartest men ever, um, he got into an investment, thought it was pretty good, made his doubled his money, got out, and then he saw it kept going up and up. So he mortgaged his house, took all of his money, put it back in, and he lost it everything. He went bankrupt. Physics and uh, market timing maybe don't go exactly together all the time. I'll just say that. Right. 
But there is this question going forward, especially at a time where people are trying to game out where the Fed is, of just the cross currents and the uncertainties and how much the U.S. can continue to diverge from other places. Does he seem to think that that's overplayed based on the AI bet, that that sort of uh, people are not looking at history and that they need to more to really understand this? Well, I think looking at history would be something he thinks is a good idea, because if you look at history, you'll see that when you have these kind of inflated uh, bubbles, they're all, inevitably they're going to burst. And so we've had many bursts. The dot-com bubble is where he really made his name because he was, in effect, uh, pre predicting that would happen in, in 1998, 1999, and 2000. And his firm did quite well, avoiding the tech bubble that existed then. Um, he's actually a legendary, at least smart person about predicting um, follies of the markets. And he's not afraid of telling you that you're not smart, you're stupid, you're doing something right. wrong. He's not afraid of, of actually going against the conventional wisdom. Very often people don't want to offend other people by telling them they're not that smart, but he's willing to say, you're wrong about this. But this is why this conversation is so important, folks. 9 p.m. tonight, Rubenstein Grantham. David, you're one of the congenital optimists out there. You have put money where mouth is on the artifacts, the heritage of the American financial experiment, the Magna Carta purchase that you made, and the others. I'm not going to say you're the polar opposite of Mr. Grantham, but there's a built-in Rubenstein optimism. Do you maintain that even with the, not perma-bear, but the perpetual caution that we witness with Jeremy Grantham? Well, he's much more bearish and much more uh, negative on things than I am personality-wise, probably. But, you know, that takes a lot of courage. When you're telling people they're wrong all the time, that's, that's not easy to do. So I'm probably not as good at telling people they're wrong to their face right. as he is. But he's willing to tell people <laughs> you're wrong okay. and you're making a big mistake. All of us rocked by the climate change stories of the summer, some, you know, this, that, the other thing. What is his prescription to have America address facts of climate change? Well, he thinks we're not doing enough for sure. Now, he can't solve all that problem himself. But what he's doing is he's taking most of his money now and investing it in green tech companies, venture capital kind of companies, small ones, hoping that one thing will come along that will actually make a big difference. But he's not trying to influence our government policy mm -hmm. by going down the lobbying. Um, he's past that. But he's actually a very, very uh, clever person who now has made his main focus in life climate tech and, and investing in things that are going to maybe help with climate. You've said several times he's not afraid to tell people to their face that they're wrong. Has he said that to you? Well, he hasn't said to me I'm wrong, but uh, necessarily. But uh, but I think generally, um, when you're predicting people, or you're predicting bubbles are going to burst. You're telling people ninety percent of the people they're wrong, and he's not afraid of telling people they're wrong. He's, you got to have to have a certain kind of personality. Probably he's better at it than I would be. The idea of investing in niche companies, sort of what Tom is talking about, whether it's climate change or whether it's some of the venture capital that other people are doing. Is that a more sure bet from your point of view now at a time where there is such a high degree of uncertainty on a macro level? Well, uh, on climate tech? Or, or just or in general, general, broadly, like this sort of niche concept of just going at things very specifically with a smaller pool of money. Is that a sure bet to make bigger returns? Um, there's no sure bets anywhere, of course. I think the, the biggest concern that I would have is that uh, we're not quite past the point where we know there's not going to be a recession. Uh, I don't think we will have a recession, but nobody knows for certain. You don't know it until you get into it. Right now, the conventional wisdom in Washington is that we've gone past the likelihood of a recession. And there are some people like Jeremy Grantham who thinks that we, we may have a recession, but it may be next year, not this year. As you know, what, there was a prediction of a hard landing, maybe by this, the end of this year. But now most people would say probably not going to have a hard landing by the end of this year. But as the <coughs> next year, that's when Jeremy Grantham thinks there will be a recession, sometimes next yeah. year. 
And again, predicting recessions is a fool's errand. It's very difficult to do. Dave, I've got time for one more question. It's really important. The quarterback for Duke is just totally irresponsible. He had late homework and he had to do a whole video asking the professor to delay his, you know, to get his homework in so he'd get a quality C. Riley Leonard of Duke University, I mean, is he destined for a Carlisle internship? <laughs> I mean, where are we on this? He's, he's, I need to make some news today. Help me. Well, I think <laughs> uh, in, in, in college football and college basketball today, you can make more money playing college <laughs> basketball and they college football than, than, than going to a uh, private equity firm. What did you think of the Citadel internship, the salaries they're getting? Did you see that last week? They're making ginormous money. Well, Citadel is a great firm, and it's got a great leader, and they're making a lot of money, and I guess they're paying out a lot of money. They want to get really smart people, and they can pay up for it. But this, what was the first? What was your first internship in finance? Where you walked in the door and said, I'm just glad. Can I get you? Um, I didn't have an internship in finance. I think my first job was probably selling magazines door to door or something like that. But I, 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 uh, I didn't have a finance uh, uh, internship, really. David Rubenstein here. Riley Leonard, if you're listening this morning, call 1-800-RUBENSTEIN, <laughs> and you get that Carlisle internship going. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.